Welcome to episode three of Our Seven Neighbors, a new seven-episode podcast brought to you by the Interreligious Institute at Chicago Theological Seminary. This podcast will bring you a story, an interview, and a conversation that will hopefully teach us, inspire us, and activate us to be better neighbors, no matter your religious or non-religious beliefs. My name is Kim Schultz, and I'm your host. Thanks for listening. This episode we are titling Immigrant Matters, because they do. Our guests include Sumai Maksudi, an Afghani refugee recently resettled in Georgia, Hoda Katabi, an amazing young Muslim woman who is an Iranian fashionista and community organizer living in Chicago, who self-identifies as an angry daughter of immigrants, and Suzanne Salul, who is the founder and executive director of the Syrian Community Network. Under her leadership, the Syrian Community Network has grown exponentially to become a strong voice for refugee and immigrant rights. It's an exciting episode. So let's jump in. If you listened to the last episode, we spoke to the mayor of the small town of Clarkston, Georgia, the most diverse square mile in the United States. And that's where we met our first guest and story, Sumai. Sumaya worked at the Refuge Coffee Company in Clarkston when she first moved to the United States. It helped her get her feet under her and start thinking about a career. Refuge Coffee in Clarkston hires and supports immigrants and refugees in job and life training. Sumaya is one woman they hired, and we were lucky enough to talk to her. Here she is. I am Sumaya Maksudi. I am originally from Afghanistan, but was born in Iran as a refugee. My parents, they grew up in Iran as a refugee as well. We have been here for two and a half years. Before refuge, I used to work at a restaurant, but at the same time, I was looking for a better job. So I asked my friends to you know, help me find another job, and then they knew about refuge, and they knew about like that they are hiring right now. So I just was like, you know, I got to go get that job, and I got it, and I'm really thankful that I'm here today. You know, working at Refuge, working in Kirkstone, it gave me the hope. It, you know, made me think about my future, made me make my dreams, actually. Because, you know, before here, I was just, you know, a refugee struggling with your life. And I, I really didn't know how I have to kind of get my life together. I was really lost in, you know, being in a new, new community, new country, but like new culture, everything new. And I was like totally lost. I was like, I, I don't know which step I have to take first, like where I have to go, like what my future will look like. So I was really confused until I started working here. And as you know, here is like a job training program. So I learned a lot in this one year. So about like, you know, the geography, about like the culture, American culture, about the history. But except that uh, this job training kind of made me to find my dreams. It kind of made me to think about my future and like have a goal about my future. I had the interview here here at Refuge. Um, they've asked me about like what my dream is. And I kind of just took a couple seconds and I was like just talking to myself that I don't have any dream. Cause you know, being as a refugee all the time, you know, I am 20, almost 25 and I was like always as a refugee. So being as a refugee is, you know, just, you know, thinking about like working, making money, having food at night, that's all. And I didn't really have any dream. I just brought up something and I was like, I want to have a business. <laughs> I really just lied because <laughs> I didn't have anything. <laughs> and then after I like started working here at the job training, we always had this question that what we are going to do with our future. And I kind of 
be more you know friendly and close to the to the employee to my carriers and everyone and I was like you know on that day I just lied I just said something but I really don't have any dream and I don't really know what I want to do with my future I have some ideas but I really don't know how I have to start it what am I going to do and right now today I know that I want to do something for women's rights especially for Afghan women's rights because I was a person that I was living in the different culture and I didn't have the rights because of the you know community culture religion everything and I'm here today and I have all of those rights. So I feel that and I have it already. I'm like, why others shouldn't have it? So Refuge kind of made me to think about this idea and I put it my dream. I chose it as my dream. But since I'm here, I didn't feel anything. Like my fear before I come to America was like, when I go to America, people won't like me. They will be just so scared from me. They will be like, you know, you refugee, just step back, don't talk to me, don't come close to me. That's how I was thinking. But then we came here and I wasn't living close by Clarkson. It was somewhere else. It was totally different. You know, people were acting like from the other side of the street. They were like saying hi, shaking hand, you know, just, you know, waving hand at you. And I was like totally surprised. I was like, wow, this is, this is really not what I was thinking. It's totally different. And everyone just start like being so nice and friendly, even though maybe they didn't even like know any refugees before, because that was totally different. Where I was living, there was like, there were no refugees. If I was like in Clarkson, I would think, you know, there are a lot of refugees, so they already know how to act and how to be, but over there, there were like no refugees, and then they were like doing and being so friendly and kind, and I was like, really <laughs> wrong about the American. <laughs> You know, we are all human. I mean, as I was afraid like of American at the beginning, so it's totally understandable that they are afraid because they never actually met any refugees. So it's totally fine if they're afraid of us because, you know, the thing that they are seeing in the news and social media is totally different than like the person, a refugee, you know. In social media, maybe they're just always war is just always you know some people are killing each other but you know in a real life here i am like and i'm just a human as i was like afraid of american that how they would you know be with me you know like they're gonna just you know say step back hey you refugee step back it's totally understandable you know at the beginning when you don't really know someone yeah that we are all like you know human I met Hoda Katavi in the sunny production studios of her immigrant and refugee co-op called Blue Tin Productions, located on the north side of Chicago. It was a joy speaking with Hoda. She spoke to me, among other things, about ethics of fashion and how that intersects with religion, social justice, and immigrant rights. Her studios were sunny and bright that day. Hoda gave me a tour. Here's Hoda. Hoda, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Of course. Thank you so much for having me and coming to our studio. We're thrilled to be here. You want to just walk us around and yes. tell us a little bit about the studio? Um, this is our studio. <laughs> I love the natural light and the big windows. When we were looking at all of the rooms in this building, this definitely was easily like the one that really struck me really quickly just because of how much the natural light is just flooding the space. And then on this side of the room we have six straight stitch industrial juki machines they're very fast 
We also collectively all picked these like big bright blue chairs that are office chairs. Obviously blue because it's on brand because we're Blue in Production. That was probably the hardest decision we have ever collectively made before. The chair decision. Yes. <laughs> so you called this a uh, membership program. What, what does that mean? Yes. So Blue in Production is an all-women immigrant and refugee-run apparel manufacturing workers cooperative. <laughs> That's um, a lot. <laughs> it is. It is. Because uh, we're trying to do a lot. I asked about a letter I saw on the table. A letter from one of our interns that's very sweet. And um, Can you read it? A part of it? She ends with saying that after, you know, being here for about a quarter, a semester with us, she says that, quote, I can now say with complete confidence that honest, radical change is underway in the fashion industry and it is starting right here in Chicago. I feel like you are all about radical change. Would you agree with that? That's the goal. I hope that's most people's goals. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Why is that important right now, and why is that important to you in this work that you do? Well, I think that we should accept nothing less or nothing short of radical change. I think that we need it to survive, and we're not going to be able to survive or, or experience what freedom looks like or feels like until we have radical systemic change at a wholesale level. So I, I feel like right now in the United States, especially, like we have capitalism and the way in which it exists with white supremacy and this empire that we live in, all work together in order to really cultivate minds in a very particular, like docile, narrow-minded thinking. We've normalized a level of violence that we don't really recognize as violent or that shouldn't be normal. So for example, we like we build cages, fill it with our people's bodies and we call it justice. We bomb Afghanistan and we call it freedom. And we like surveil like Muslims and people who look like me and we call it national security. So I think that we have all these code words for things that feel like safety or feel like it should keep our people safe, but it actually does the opposite. So I think we have a very very deep ideological crisis in the United States, and I think that justice has not been tasted in this land yet. Then Hoda and I sat down and continued talking. Hoda, you describe yourself as a sarcastic and angry Muslim. <laughs> in Iranian, excuse me, a creative and um, community organizer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about that. Which part? <laughs> <laughs> the angry part? Sure. That's usually what people ask about. I think anger is righteous. And I feel like if you're not angry right now, then you're not paying attention. And, I'm, and I also think that Muslims, particularly women of color, particularly black women, but are always characterized as angry. And so anytime anyone just opens their mouth, like they're just like, oh, don't yell at me, you're so angry. And so I feel like it's, it's oftentimes a phrase that's been weaponized against women of color. But I, I feel like I want to embrace that because I do feel that anger is really powerful. And for me, anger has actually been the root of so much of my work, being able to be angry and like sit with that anger and then decide what direction I want to like direct that toward. Mm. And I think that it's absolutely righteous to be angry right now. And so out of that anger, is that part of what Blue Tin Production Co-op, is that part of where that came from? I think in part. So I think Blue Tin Production works to address two major issues. The first is just a lack of ethical, transparent production in the United States or really globally and really seeing just like a lack. So part of Blue Tin was really just seeing a huge gap within the industry that needed to be filled and my own frustrations with not being able to find a place to produce a clothing line that I was working on and sort of a constant devaluing of women's labor in this part of the supply chain, particularly so. But part of the, the anger I think that did fuel a lot of Bluetin's creation or the work was like seeing the ways in which the bar was just so low for refugee resettlement. Like we feel like if we just get 
a refugee, quote-unquote, a job at McDonald's part-time, then we've checked our box for, like, what refugee resettlement looks like, and, like, we're a great little nonprofit. But that's ridiculous and is violent, actually. And I think that it's... The bar is just way too low for immigrant refugee women, particularly, to be able to find sustainable, holistic places that to work that also is able to, like, deal with the trauma that exists. Um, just because you're here doesn't mean that you're not still carrying trauma, that your family can be killed at any moment back home, or that there's not racism that you have to deal with every single day in this country. And so I think that the bar, like the framework or understanding that we have, particularly with immigrant uh, and refugee work, I think is really dehumanizing and patronizing and infantilizing. And so being able to create a space where women and these women who are most sort of marginalized and infantilized have the most agency in this space and get to decide exactly what the fuck they want because they should be the ones to do it. So for you, how does fashion and feminism and justice. Uh, you spoke a little bit about it in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, sweatshops, in terms of workers' rights. How does that intersect for you specifically? Well, I think fashion is inherently political. I think that all public art is a, is inherently political because this is a form of communication. And with a, the ability to be able to communicate, and especially in a day and age like this one, we're either using this power of communication, we're using, using art as a way to challenge the status quo and make people think about things differently, really push the boundaries of the conversation, or we're not, and we're silent, and that silence is complacency. And I think that fashion is no doubt part of that conversation as well. So, for example, me as someone who's visibly Muslim, every single day when I step outside of the house, I make a conscious decision to dress in a way that also will bring me under heightened surveillance by the state, heightened risk of getting physically assaulted again by people um, walking around me. I make that decision every day, and it's been politicized whether or not I want it to be. But the same thing goes for, like, for example, a black man on the south side of Chicago. If he steps out of his house wearing all red, for example, he can automatically be added to a gang database on site. So I think that if somebody doesn't have to step outside of their house and, like, consciously be aware of the way in which they're dressing and the context and the color of their skin and everything, that's privilege. And so I I think that right now we, a lot of our movements, unfortunately, lack depth and complexity in a way that is not surface level. Like I feel like right now a lot of people are trying to find positions within the system and like trying to like they're we're working toward representation and not liberation. Mm. And I feel like those are two very very different things because I do not believe that representation will bring liberation. They're not a stand-in for each other. How do you change the um, world every day? I don't think that happens. I think that it's definitely movement building. Like, I don't think any one person can change the world. And I think that anybody who's like trying to push this like idea of like a singular hero is also ripe with like whatever. Um, (laughs) I think we need to really invest in our communities. And I think that looks like being able to, so I identify as an abolitionist, which means that I understand systems and structures that are inherently violent and specifically rely on anti-blackness cannot be reformed in order to be better, but actually must be Abolish, and we can think about alternatives in that place. And so abolition is about getting rid of systems, but it also is about, more importantly, imagining what a world could look like in which we all thrive. And so blue tin production is sort of the attempt of being able to imagine what it could look like in which like value is placed inherently in this point in the supply chain and workers own and run the business. Like what does it mean to bring value into a space that's been historically devalued by the industry and being able to imagine a place that clothes could be made in which like we feel good about, like we feel good about engaging with. like we don't even call this a factory. It's a studio. It looks like a studio. It feels like a studio. It does. Um, it's a very like comfortable space. We're building a community and it's very also like rooted in our larger Chicago and beyond community as well. And so what would you say to somebody probably 
white, but I might edit that out, <laughs> who might be afraid of what you say in terms of destroying the systems. What would you say to that person? I think they need to check their privilege because if they're afraid of a system that upholds violence to be done away with, that means that they are relying on systems of violence and they've normalized a privilege that is inherently violent. Your faith, you are a practicing Muslim. Is your faith 100%. connected to the work you do? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I would not be doing what I'd be doing right now if I was not Muslim. But also I think that Islam is very important for me in terms of being able to help me stay afloat and optimistic and positive when I receive like slews of death threats constantly online or facing violence like or physical assault or things like that because I know that the only person that can take my life is God. Is there Was there a direct correlation with starting Bluetin with your faith? Or was it just a natural progression? Um, I think the way, like the specific projects that I work in are, I think, a product of a larger set of values that I have that are rooted in my faith. But actually, all of our members are religious. Not all of them are Muslim. So one of our members is um, an immigrant domestic violence survivor from Nigeria. And she is very Christian. And her Christianity and the ways in which she expresses it in this space actually helps me become a better Muslim. And we talk about religion all the time. And it's so beautiful and grounding to like be able to like just talk with her and see her praying for gluten, you know, like right before she eats lunch. And then I'm like, well, I should pray for gluten right before we eat lunch too. <laughs> and so it's just, it's a really like wholesome, beautiful space. And it's interfaith that's not like bullshit interfaith, you know, because like I don't, I think I have a lot of critiques with interfaith work, but it's like, it's just beautiful to be able to like sit and talk about things that we both believe in for a, a larger goal that's bigger than both of us. Chicago Theological Seminary professor, our very own Rabbi Dr. Rachel Mikva, had a chance to sit down with Suzanne Salul of Chicago's Syrian Community Network to listen and reflect on what Sumai and Hoda had spoken about. Let's listen. Hi, I'm Rachel Mikva, and I'm delighted to welcome Suzanne Salul with me as my conversation partner on Our Seven Neighbors. Hi, Rachel. I'm so glad to be here. You know, given your own work with refugees and recent immigrants, I want to ask what really resonated with you in Samaya's reflections about that experience of being a refugee. First of all, thank you for having me on your show. And I really enjoyed listening to Sumaya's story of how she first came to the United States and what her expectations were before she left her country of origin or where she was as a refugee. And then what she found to be her resettlement hosts in Clarkson or in the city that's close to Clarkson uh, nearby Atlanta and how her perceptions changed after she came here. And I really appreciated her uh, zeal and her enthusiasm in speaking about the community, how they welcomed her. And I thought that was very touching. And that has been also the experience of many of the refugees that we work with, where they had different perceptions about people in America, the U.S. in general, and coming to Chicago and seeing that people were welcoming them completely changed their minds and changed their hearts. And that's the important thing, that you have somebody who changed their heart about the way they thought about the other. Yeah, the the social media constructions or the yeah. however it is we get these impressions, these imaginary impressions of who yeah. this other is in both directions, right? How. Yes. Many Americans think about refugees or think about immigrants and the what folks coming to America may have heard or may have felt about about Americans or about this country before you have that real human interaction that yeah. actually can tra- be so transformative. Yes. Absolutely. Um, when she talked about the difficulty of forging a dream, that she didn't have a dream for a while. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. right? And she was just trying to survive and yes. and get to the next day. And then to have suddenly the encouragement and the space to cultivate a dream. And then of course there's one, right? If you have the breath and the space and the support to make one. Yes, uh, that is uh, such a, a telling feeling of what she was expressing that she didn't have a dream. So because so many times when you're in survival mode, you really don't know what you want. And there's no time to think about what you want. You're only trying to get your food and your water and your basic necessities and, and safety, of course. What were your thoughts about Hoda's reflections on refugees in the U.S.? Uh, there were um, Hoda's reflections were amazing also and how yeah. she has been able to create this idea of hers and to empower refugee women to fulfill their 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 dreams and the opportunities that are presented to them. Of course, you know, we um, always stress on uplifting people, uh, whether it's women, men, children, teenagers, teen girls specifically, you want to uplift them and give them a path to success and whatever that the way that looks like, it could be different for many people. Right. And to be able to recognize that many of these folks come with gifts and experience and to empower them to find a way to use them and deploy them here. And I was especially struck by her insight about the historical devaluing of women's labor. So I'll comment on the resettlement. We have the refugee program that we bring in people to safety and security and help them rebuild their lives. And that is a process. And you have to start somewhere. First, you have to have, you know, in Maslow's, uh, you know, hierarchy, you have to first have shelter and food, and then, you know, uh, things start to build from there. So once people have secured those items, then they can start to grow into other things. So the resettlement agency is there to help you with shelter, food, and, you know, those types of things and, you know, jobs. But they're not designed to for the refugee to really like go beyond that. The resettlement agencies do a lot in terms of services. And I, my organization is not a resettlement. We're the community-based organization. But I've worked a lot with the resettlement agencies, and they do good work and amazing work, actually. I heard Hoda saying that refugee resettlement agencies by themselves are not sufficient, right? That it does require exactly the kind of organization that you run, or the kind of projects that she's trying to take undertake with blue tin production or refuge coffee where Samaya works, which is another kind of community grounded set of, well, an organization of people who are trying to help folks make next steps, yes. right? That we don't set the bar too low. Of course, it isn't simply what we can do for refugees and new immigrants in the U.S. It's also the tremendous value that refugees and other immigrants add to our culture, our economy, Mm -hmm. our community. Mm -hmm. And there, too, I think Refuge Coffee in Clarkston and the Blue Tin Production here in Chicago, they're, they're great examples. And I'm totally excited by this different way of thinking about clothing manufacturing that's cooperative, transparent right? A studio, yeah. not a factory. Yes. What was the intern's comment? Honest radical change is possible in the fashion industry. Mm-hmm. I was struck by that. So are there other aspects of these projects or, or different ones that you would lift up or general reflections on the way you've seen immigrants 
add value in such important ways to our community. Yeah, I mean, just if you go to the north side of Chicago in, in Uptown or near Rogers Park, just to look at all of the businesses that have been created by immigrants and refugees, you know, the restaurants, the food, the, you know, the different, you know, clothing shops, the different ethnic, you know, stores that are lined on Devon Avenue. And it's amazing to see what a colorful array of cultures and ingenuity coming together and, you know, in this, you know, small area of the greater Chicagoland area of seeing all of these types of like, you know, all of the food that we eat, that we enjoy, you know, like many of us take it for granted. We're eating sushi or that we're eating, right. you know, Thai food. And we think it's so cool. And it's so like, oh my God, you know, and, but that came from somewhere. <laughs> this is something that we kind of forget, but these are people that, you know, somebody who opened the Thai restaurant, it was a mom and pop that came, probably immigrated, worked hard, probably the whole family, the husband, wife, and the children probably worked at the restaurant. And I bet you the children did their homework in the restaurant because they had to support their parents until they built up the business so that it can be sustained. And then it became a movement and, and it became cool and popular to go to Thai food or whatever. So, you know, just looking at the tapestry of the north side of Chicago and on, all, all over the Chicagoland area and all over this country, of the things that we enjoy that are very immigrant-based and very ethnic-based that have come our way because of a robust immigration policy that we've had before this administration. And that's something that we take for granted. And we don't really like connect that, okay, this Thai restaurant or this the sushi that we're eating or this cool, you know, Brazilian restaurant that, <laughs> you know, it, it, it came from somewhere. Absolutely. I was struck by the different perspectives that Samaya and Hoda brought you know, someone as an American, I think we have to see, be honest, you know, do we have policies in place that are racist in nature, that are, you know, have hurt a lot of people? Yes, especially after 9-11. We saw, you know, the Islamophobia rose, you know, by huge percentages uh, that people were afraid. And this war, whole war on terror that came out of 9-11 is really based in, I believe, in racist ideology, you know, this endless war that we see in Afghanistan. Then the the war in Iraq, I think that was a huge blunder on our part. And it really shook our moral standing in the world that we, you know, attacked a, a sovereign nation that had really nothing to do with 9-11 and, and blamed everything on them. And look at the Middle East, the mess that it is today is because of a lot of it because of the Iraq war. However, I also believe that we as Americans need to work really hard from within to change these types of systems where we are either engaged in civic engagement and, you know, working with our local leadership, running for office, educating our community members, educating the communities uh, about these policies, that these are dangerous policies overall in, in the world. It has not made us safer in, in any way. I did like Hoda's challenge about language. We lock people in cages and call it justice, bomb Afghanistan and call it freedom, surveil Muslims and call it national security. I do think we often automatically rationalize state violence through that kind of language yes. and with more wholesome critique and honest reflection on that, we can challenge some yeah. of the systemic problems. But I, I love that your work and your passion is to keep the focus on the people who need help mm -hmm. right in front of us. Hoda also talks about how fashion is inherently political. And I was thinking, of course, about the politicizing of the hijab and the niqab, right? That we've, mm -hmm. we've always inscribed societal values and litmus tests over on women's bodies, right? And women's dress. And right now, this is one of the politicized issues. What's been your own experience with the politicizing of hijab? 
there's a lot of misconceptions about hijab and uh, why people do it. In fact, many people, you know, when I grew up in Syria, when I lived in Syria, there were many people who didn't wear hijab. And then when there was some a form of resistance against the government, people did started to wear hijab, you know. So, <laughs> and right. so, so it is kind of like, like that, you know, as you mentioned. Uh, but then I found when I came to the United States, the, the personal freedom to choose to wear it or not. Is it easy? No, it's not, especially after 9-11. There, you know, it, it became even harder. And especially hijab became even harder at a time when Trump was elected and the travel right. ban and the Muslim ban and all these things came on. You know, there were many people in the community that have taken off their hijab, worrying about their safety. And, and I've contemplated that myself. My core is that I, I want to stick to my values. And then also when I look at the people who I serve, the clients I serve, when most of them are wearing hijab and persevering, what's my excuse then? And they're here in Chicago with uh, limited English and are struggling to start over. And they have continued to wear their hijab despite all of the things that are going on around them, the travel ban, all these types of things. And there's this, uh, you feel like an attack, there's an attack on Muslims specifically. So I felt like I have to stand in solidarity with with the clients, or with our families, the refugee families that we serve. So in, in some ways, it has been politicized because it it became a symbol for you know uh, you know for some because you're visibly Muslim and but but it also is now kind of like a symbol of, of a little bit of resistance because you're not just going along with the masses, but you're you know, you're standing strong you know against all the things that are trying to tell you to take off your hijab. Thank you so much for your time and your passion and all the work that you do. We are deeply grateful. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And so the work continues. Thank you for joining our conversation and meeting some neighbors. Special thanks to Samai, Hoda, and Suzanne. To hear more about our guests today, check out our iTunes page, Facebook page, or website at our7neighbors.com. We'd love you to help the amazing work all our guests are doing. Check them out. And to find out more about Chicago Theological Seminary, join us at ctschicago.edu. Special thanks to CTS, Chicago Theological Seminary. Thanks for listening to Our 7 Neighbors, brought to you by the Interreligious Institute at Chicago Theological Seminary. This podcast is community-driven, and you are a part of our community. So we want your thoughts, your feedback, your questions. We have set up a voicemail for that purpose. Call us, leave a message. We may play your comment or answer your question on future episodes. Let's be in conversation together. The number to call, 773-896-2529. That's 773-896-2529. Or you can just leave us a note on our Facebook page at the Interreligious Institute. We look forward to hearing from you. Join us for another story, interview, and conversation with your seven neighbors. Is there someone you know that might enjoy this podcast? We appreciate any sharing you might do of Our Seven Neighbors. And join us online at our 7 Talk soon.